Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Grok Radio. The following broadcast is made possible by the friends and partners of CYI Worldwide Ministries and Grok Radio. And the views expressed in this program and by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of CYI Worldwide Ministries or its staff. And now, enjoy the show. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Everyone and I am Nick Peters, the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm coming to you at Shui on the road today. As you know, we live in Knoxville, Tennessee, more specifically Croydon, and I was invited to come up to the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area where I, I spoke at a conference from for By His Hands Ministries, and I gave a talk on the importance of apologetics in the church today. And it's really great to give a talk like this to ever. Christians and actually have them start saying amen when you're speaking and have other people come up afterwards and affirm what you say because this is just so very needed in the church today and as you know from a blog yes it was my birthday yesterday and I do want to thank so many of you who posted on Facebook wishing me a happy birthday and yes getting to speak at a conference and speak about the topic that I love is one of the best gifts I could get so, just letting you all know for next year, okay, if anybody is interested. But, I also thank you that some of you were interested in donating to us when I mentioned that on the blog yesterday. And, I'll be giving a little bit more information about that in the show. But, for now, I've yapped on enough. Okay, we gotta get to our guest. My guest is actually Rick Matson. Now, I got his book in the mail a few months ago. It's an IVP book called Faith is Like Skydiving. This is a good gateway introduction book to apologetics if you're just trying to learn how it's done. <clears throat> the title works really well. That the, the analogy is the one Tim McGrew used in his debate with Peter Bogosian on Unbelievable. But the, the whole book is full of analogies and it helps you ex- understand these terms that seem so complex by relating them to terms you can understand. So who is Rick Matson? Well, he serves as a traveling evangelist apologist for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and he's appeared at 50 campuses in the past five years. The most common event he holds on campus is called Stump for Chump, where students can come and ask the chump, Rick, any question about Christianity. His home base is McAllister College, in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he serves as the InterVarsity staff worker. And when now on the road, Rick enjoys time with his wife, kids, and grandkids in golf and riding. Well, very good to have a chump aboard. Welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast, Rick Matson. Hey, thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. Yeah, I don't think we've ever had a chump on before, so that's going to be a nice... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe never again. Not again. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure we will. But... You know, I never got to hear of you until the book came out, which, like I said, is an excellent book. I'm sure I'm not the only one that wrote. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to be doing what you're doing, and how did the book come about? Yeah. 
I've always had an interest in apologetics ever since I uh, became a Christian at age 19. I grew up in the church, but it never really took hold for me in a personal way. And when friends uh, who were Christians had become Christians shared Christ with me, this is in small town in southern Minnesota called Marshall, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. uh, they shared the Lord with me, took me to church, and I got involved in university. It was a pretty much an emotional experience and a spiritual experience for me. I didn't do a lot with the intellect, but very soon after, I started hearing arguments for the historical Jesus, the resurrection, the origins of the universe, and so forth. And I just took an interest to that immediately. And that was more than three decades ago, Nick. Mm -hmm. And after that, I was on staff of university and kept up my interest in apologetics as I worked with students. Uh, many of them would have questions. Believers would have questions that would help them establish and uh, affirm their faith. And unbelievers had many questions. Uh, some were on the way to faith. Some never made it there, but just tons of questions around the campus environment. And I always thrived in that setting. So finally, uh, when I was in my early 50s, I kind of maneuvered myself into place in the organization where I could become an apologist and evangelist full-time. I'd been in you know, leadership positions and so forth before then, and I was just so excited about that. So five years ago, I went on the road, and I'm out about, oh, half-time during the school year at campuses around the country doing training and speaking and outreach to, to students and faculty. I just enjoy it so much. I did my seminary training at Bethel in the uh, Bethel University, Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, here in St. Paul, Minnesota, and studied philosophy of religion there and just loved it. I thrived on it. So I like talking about this stuff. I'm certainly not uh, an expert in everything, but I've had a million conversations with college students the last few years, and it was out of those conversations that I ended up writing the book. Well, I really like hearing that kind of story, and I think it's something incredibly important to point out that how you said you really didn't have the emotional connection. And I think that can be common for a lot of us in the, the apologetics field and just in the field of humanity, particularly not all of us are very emotional people. Some of us do thrive on things of the intellect. I can hear, for instance, the same sermon several, several t times and just think, okay, uh, when is this going to get done? Uh, I think I'll go home and do something entertaining, but just hear a sermon that connects with me intellectually, and boom, I'm right there, everything's in play. I mean, some of us are just like that, aren't we? Yeah, and I think if we uh, view ourselves as integrated people, that the emotions aren't separate from the intellect, the intellect they're connected. Right. And our spiritual lives are not disconnected from those other two realms. It's all an integrated whole. Mm -hmm. It is useful to talk about them separately at times, just so you can mm -hmm. focus on them. But in real life, I think they are very integrated. Yeah, but... I, I actually get excited. My emotions, uh, they uh, they get excited when I hear a good argument. When I read oh, something, yeah. it really touches the situation that I'm mm -hmm. facing. It might be an intellectual argument, but it still touches my emotions. And, and I love those interconnections. Yep. I I can my wife has to hold me back whenever we go into a bookstore because I'm going to go crazy and get everything. <laughs> yeah. I, I I need to get that book bag sometime that has that quote from Erasmus that says, "When I get money, I buy books, and if I have anything left over, I get food and clothes." <laughs> That's good. I I might have to uh, think about adjustment in lifestyle there with that yeah. suggestion. Yeah, and I I tell people in our marriage that I'm the head. 
she's the heart. Because if you're if you come to us and you say, I need some good empathy. I need someone to really be able to hear me this time. I say, like, I feel sorry for you and everything, but Ari's the main one to talk to. She's much more able to connect on that level. If you want yeah. the argument, you come to me. Yeah, sometimes it just takes teamwork to round yep. out things in ministry, and I, I think that's fine. Now, Rick, you've been going around to college campuses for years, and so, uh, you know, surely there's not really that much of a need for Christian apologetics on the campus, is there? <laughs> well, five years ago, I felt like I was taking a risk. If I hang out a shingle as an apologist, would anyone uh, give a call? And I have to say, in the last five years, I, I've been packed all the time. I haven't had hardly any openings in my schedule. Hmm. And I think if one thinks about an apologist, not just in a very narrow sense as providing intellectual arguments, but one who makes an overall case for Christian faith. And that means when you're presenting that you care for people, and that means that when you're at a campus, you work with the Christian students to help develop their skills mm -hmm. in evangelism and apologetics. Uh, I think those are the kind of value add-ons that can make for a good apologetics ministry. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you just hang out a shingle and say, hey, we're doing problem with evil, who wants to come? It'll be an empty house. So it has a lot to do with the community and the cultural ethos of the Christian community, whether or not they're willing to engage in apologetics and set up events and invite their friends. There's as much of a social and spiritual dimension, I think, to this sort of outreach as there is to the technicalities of the arguments themselves. I can back you on what you said about your schedule. If I'm correct, I contacted you about coming on this show, I think it was either late July or early August. Yeah. Yeah, I am, I am busy, thankfully, mm -hmm. and I just, Nick, I didn't know when I started this thing off. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure, but uh, you get out there, and uh, if you do a lousy job, work gets around quickly, and if you do a decent job, work gets around quickly, so mm -hmm. hopefully I've been doing a decent job, because I've been really busy uh, all these years. During the school year, during the summer, I don't travel much, stay at home and do prep and fundraising and uh, mm -hmm. get a little golf in, and then during the school year, I'm out about 50% of the time on the road at college campuses. Do you see yourself making a difference? Do you see the, the students very appreciating what you're doing? It varies. Mm. Uh, a lot of them do. A lot of them have never thought about certain uh, issues in religion uh, before, before I'm able to uh, make an argument or make a presentation to them. And my favorite moments are kind of when the light goes on and goes, oh, I never oh, thought yeah. that way before. I never mm -hmm. saw that before. Or, oh, my friend needs to hear that. I'll bring my friend tomorrow. Those are my favorite moments. And that does happen a lot. I wouldn't say that it happens universally. I think some students uh, listen to what I have to say, listen to a presentation, and at least it appears that they're not much moved by it. Or they may even oppose it. They mm -hmm. do get people arguing back at me at times, which is fine. That's part of the game. Mm -hmm. So uh, to answer your question, I would say yes. I think it does help a lot of students. It helps them think through faith or the possibilities of faith in new ways for them, opens up new vistas. And then uh, other times you've got your hardened skeptics, and uh, <laughs> at least it seems that they don't appreciate it so much. Okay, well, let's talk about the book here. It's called Faith is Like Skydiving. How did this book come about? Well, when I was doing Stump the Chump, where I'm the stump and students can come and ask any question they want, early in the game I was giving a lot of arguments that I knew over the years or that I learned in seminary or whatever, 
and they were fairly abstract. Sometimes they were fairly technical, at least as technical as I could go. And I was having trouble nailing them down and keeping them compact and memorable, uh, not just for my audience, but for myself. Mm -hmm. And so the more I did these arguments, the more I started to develop concrete images, illustrations, stories, metaphors mm -hmm. that I could remember when I was out doing my presentations, and more importantly, that my audience could remember more than five minutes after I gave them, mm -hmm. and could reproduce with their friends. Mm -hmm. And well, then at some point I thought I should just write these down in a book because it's kind of a missing niche. You've got tons of books that are introductions to apologetics. You've got tons of books that are more advanced and more technical in apologetics and various subfields of apologetics. Not much on communication in mm -hmm. apologetics, and especially not much in terms of illustrations and metaphors, images that people can use in their work in apologetics. So I kind of felt like I found a little niche there, a need in, mm -hmm. in the market, if you will. I talked to the editors at IVP and they agreed and that's how the book came about. And, mm -hmm. and Nick, I had so much fresh material when I was writing, it just felt like, wow, I had this conversation last week or last month. And, mm -hmm. and of course I write down summaries of all my conversations on the road. So I just had tons of fresh material that I could draw from. I, I thought a pretty deep well. And uh, it just came flying out of my fingers as I was writing the book, and that's uh, that's what I have in front of me now. Excellent, and I agree with you. The, the analogies are very, very memorable, Sarah. And even on the way back here from where I was at earlier today for the conference, I was remembering some of the titles like "Hair is like an empty pub" or "A miracle is like a hole in one." And, which I, I should say that it was a time several years ago, I remember my folks took me to a golf course and the very first hole I actually got a hole in one on. What? You did? Did mm -hmm. you even play much golf? Well, it was miniature golf. Does that count? Oh. <laughs> no, I'm cheating. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd done something very impressive, but oh well. well some people don't play much golf get hold, get, get a hole in one, and I've never had one. Me, hardcore golfer, have been playing my whole life. Yeah. Uh, the only kind of golf I play is miniature, so that's as far that that'd be something impressive since we were talking about, talking about miracles a bit there, but I guess that, that just doesn't cut it as much, does it? No, that, that analogy probably would not hold. Okay, well let's talk about the first one here. Faith is like skydiving. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Tim McGrew, but he did use this analogy in a debate with Peter Bogosian on Unbelievable. He said, faith is like skydiving, in that... You do take a leap, but it's not a blind leap as if, uh, for instance, if we were on a plane together, and no, I have no intention of ever going skydiving, but I don't care how good friends you and I are, if you pack my parachute, I am not taking that jump, because you're not a trained one to do that. Now, if you have someone who's certified who does it, then, okay, there's a slight, slight chance I might still be dumb enough to take the jump. But if I take the jump, it's reasonable then, because my parachute should open 99.9% .9 of the time, or however much it is. It's not so much of a sure thing, but there's still an element of risk involved. And I think that's the point Tim McGrew was getting at. Would you care to unpack the analogy some yourself? Yeah. Yeah, uh... Tim McGrew is an acquaintance of mine at Western Michigan University, and I got to hang out with him a bit last year. Uh, 
but yeah, the the analogy I think works at the one main level, and that is the the evidential level, meaning that there's got to be good evidence for my safety before I would ever jump out of a plane. Mm -hmm. I say good evidence, that means stuff that I can check out, like the the, the track record of the this uh, little company maybe that's doing jumps, and mm -hmm. the, the pilots, this uh, trustworthy pilot, and the gear, and the uh, even the statistics for people who do parachuting, what's skydiving, what's the statistic, statistically, what's the probability of me being safe. I would want to check out all those things so that I'm not doing this sort of blind leap out of an airplane. I'm doing an informed leap out of an airplane. That's what faith is like. It should be an informed uh, decision to trust in Christ and the Christian worldview. I wouldn't want to do that blindly, just like I wouldn't want to jump out of a plane blindly. But I think you make a good point. There's, there's still risk. There's mm -hmm. no proof. There's no guarantees. But that's a, a lot of life is that way. In my town, the 35W Bridge uh, came down a few years ago due to structural uh, integrity problems. And yet, today, people drive over that bridge all the time. Is it 100% philosophical certitude, scientific proof that that bridge is going to hold me up when I drive over it? No, but there's a lot of good evidence that there is. Mm -hmm. So I still drive over it. And that's how faith is. It's not 100% certitude and not 100% scientific proof. It's like a lot of other life. You take a calculated risk, and when the evidence um, mounts up in favor of the Christian worldview and shows it most likely to be true, then you place your trust in it, you open your parachute, you jump out of the plane, you open your parachute. So faith is like skydiving. So kind of the mental part, I would say, of faith, uh, skydiving is a good analogy for. And sometimes I use the marriage analogy for more the relational side of faith. Mm -hmm. I might be getting ahead of uh, your questions here. Yeah, I, I've used a marriage analogy as well before. I've uh, told people when you're coming to consider making a lifelong commitment in the religious sense, it's important to know who you're getting into bed with. And yeah. I said, just ask Jacob. Oh, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's always risk. There's relational risk. Yep. Is this person going to love me and treat me well? And is there any scientific proof of that? Well, mm. no, not necessarily. It's more of a, an experiential, intuitive decision that you make, uh, a realization that you come to that this person really does care for me and is going to be uh, loyal to me and trustworthy. It's interesting that you brought up the term scientific, I think, because usually we consider something to be certain if it's established scientifically. But really, in science, there isn't 100% absolute certainty. Right. Yeah, you're trusting in your scientific equipment, you're trusting in the conditions, you're trusting in your uh, epistemic, your noetic equipment, mm -hmm. eyes, ears, you're, you're trusting in the uh, interpretive community mm -hmm. that interprets results of science. Uh, there's lots of things to trust in, and I don't mm -hmm. think those are unreasonable things to trust in, but as soon as you talk about full-on scientific proof, uh, now you're getting into philosophy of science, and mm -hmm. that's a little bit different ballgame. Mm -hmm. And we should also mention that what science considers a settled matter in one decade might change a decade or two, a hundred years later. Mm -hmm. So it's always with a little bit of, uh, I would say, humility, and uh, we hold on to these so-called scientific proofs a little bit loosely, knowing that as new information comes in, 
we might come to uh, somewhat different conclusions in the future. And I'm fine with that. I love science, mm -hmm. but we shouldn't think of a scientific conclusion as being a completely settled matter. Have you met any students on your campuses that you've been with that are of the Peter Bogosian or Richard Dawkins type who mischaracterize what faith is? Yeah, that's pretty common on college campuses these day, I, days. I do hang out with uh, quite a few atheists, skeptics, agnostics. Uh, some are just friendly, reasonable, caring. They hold to their positions in a pretty careful manner. They realize that they could possibly be wrong. They're, they're looking into other views. They want to hear opposing views so that their own thinking can be challenged and strengthened. And I love that setting. Some are just meaner than that. <laughs> like really internet atheist. Yeah, the internet atheist. kind of a negative spirit out there. And I think you'd probably divide those into two camps as well. Some of those are pretty well informed and well read. They're just mean-spirited. Others, I mean, they're just parroting arguments, rhetorical arguments that they've read on the internet mm -hmm. and they've heard it, other people say. And they don't really know anything. And they think they're... Um, making a dent in Christians by having a kind of real abusive, combative manner. Mm. And of the three camps I just talked about, those are the ones that I respect the least. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's that's no fun. I, I don't enjoy that much at all. Usually, when I've gotten into these kinds of discussions, one of the kinds of questions I've asked to really see what kind of person I'm dealing with is <clears> this: <throat> When was the last time you read a scholarly book that disagreed? with you. Yes. These kinds of people don't answer that question. Right. No, they don't. <clears throat> yeah, that's your uh, internet rhetoric uh, atheist right there who doesn't uh, bother to do the uh, more challenging and, and scholarly reading, <clears throat> especially from uh, Christian scholars. How about when... Yeah, I, th I think there's a call there embedded uh, for ourselves, Nick, that mm. we Christians need to be informed about the best mm -hmm. uh, atheism and skepticism that's sitting out there as well from from scholars and good thinkers. And I think that's one of our responsibilities. Yeah, I'm thinking about how uh, about a month or so ago I was debating with someone on the internet that said, where I take Bart Ehrman very seriously. I said, oh, you do? Good. Let me show you some quotes from Bart Ehrman here that totally disagree with what you're saying. <laughs> now, do you still take Bart Ehrman seriously? If you if you know the other side better than they know the other side, you're yeah. very ahead of the game, Ben. Exactly. Yeah, I use some Ehrman quotes in my presentations, and I appreciate Ehrman. And I'm, I'm no specialist on Ehrman. I don't claim to know everything about him, but I think I know the general arc of his story and uh, some of the good scholarship he's done. And, you know, he continues to be a skeptic, but it seems like there's glimmers of hope in, what he, in, the, in the approach that he takes to these matters. How about when you meet some Christians who might be surprised at your definition of faith? Because many of them are yeah. just... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, sometimes really super conservative Christians who do not have a high view of the intellect might think that it's better, it's more noble, it's mm -hmm. more biblical to just have faith without any supporting evidence. So sometimes I get a little flack from that side of things, but not too much. 
those folks tend not to congregate that much on secular college campuses, which is where I do most of my work. So I don't run into them a lot, but occasionally one will pull me aside afterwards and say, I really disagree. We don't need evidence because that's man's way of doing things. We just need to have faith in Christ because that's God's way of doing things. And then I might reply with something like, well, Christ himself actually thought that evidence was important. So he provided it all the time through his miracles. And then doubting Thomas uh, wouldn't believe unless he saw the nail prints and the, the holes in his, his side. And, uh, and Jesus accommodated that. And, and he said, okay, well, look here. Here's the evidence. And at other times he said, well, if you don't believe my words, then at least believe on account of the miracles. In other words, believe on account of the evidence. So those are the sorts of things I might say to a person who thinks that faith and evidence uh, sh should not have anything to do with each other, that they're oil and water. No, I think they are very, uh, very integrated with each other, and that uh, it's tough to maintain a solid faith if there aren't good reasons to do so. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't cover everything in the book today, unfortunately, obviously, but I'm looking at the next chapter, and it's about... Playing the whole orchestra, having your cumulative case. Well, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about breadth mm -hmm. and width in my presentations and in my manner, in my training. So, at times, the apologetic presentation is about the community of faith that's doing it. Mm -hmm. At times, I'm appealing to the emotions. At times, I'm appealing to experience. At times, I'm using... Um, the life of intuition. At times I'm using relationships. Mm -hmm. All of these things are fair game when it comes to making a persuasive case for the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And I think when the atheist comes <coughs> along and says, no, I'm restricting the whole notion of evidence to scientific evidence and scientific proof, then I want to say, no, I'm playing my whole orchestra here and uh, I don't have to play by the atheist rule that says only the scientific method can be used for investigating truth. Mm -hmm. and I'll give you an example of this, Nick. If I'm investigating the truth of whether or not my wife Sharon loves me, I can't really put that under a microscope. I use intuition and experience. I use uh, the testimony of other people and, what, and how they view Sharon. So there's a, a whole, uh, there's a whole host of reasons why I think my wife Sharon loves me and is loyal to me even when she's out of town like she is this weekend. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have a lot to do with scientific proof. And we come to conclusions in life all the time uh, in ways that are not confined to scientific proof. So when I say play your whole orchestra, hey, play up the violins when it comes to appealing to emotion. Play up the trumpets when it comes to using personal experience. Play up the drums, let's say, when it comes to hearing the uh, eyewitness testimony of someone who saw a miracle. All of these are fair game, and we cannot allow the atheists to dictate the rules by which we measure truth. And that's what I mean by play your whole orchestra. Yeah, at the same time, I think <clears throat> there's an opposite danger we can make as Christians. At, when it comes to that, we can sometimes think we have to be able to play every instrument in the orchestra fluently. <laughs> and which I sometimes say, yeah, I know the areas I do well in apologetics, and I know the areas I don't do well, and I'm more than happy to refer to someone else in those other areas, but I find if you think you can play every single area like a pro, you're going to fail at a whole lot of them. Yeah, 
Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I've never thought of myself as kind of that genius level who right. knows a lot about everything. I feel like I know a little bit about most of these topics and then maybe specialize in one or two of them. And I think what mm -hmm. you say speaks to the need for teamwork mm -hmm. in the body of Christ, that I might refer to you or you might refer to me or we might refer to Tim McGrew at Western Michigan University uh, mm -hmm. for someone who has more expertise in a certain area than we do. And since we've mentioned Tim McGrew so many times, I should mention to people that, yes, he has been on the podcast, I believe it was July of 2013. I'd have to check again, but you can go back and hear him, and it was a fascinating talk. If you don't know who Tim McGrew is in apologetics, you need to learn who Tim McGrew is. Mm -hmm. And I think you even talked about how you were told to just use anything you can for the kingdom. I mean, you hadn't even considered using musical ability for the kingdom, mm -hmm. had you? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I did grow up as a musician and played music when I was young and we had a, a boy band and it was all fun. This was way back in the 70s and then mm -hmm. I've been in church music for a long time. I was a worship leader and guitar player and so forth. So every once in a while when I'm out on the road, I'll pick up the guitar and try to add or supplement the apologetic arguments with something more aesthetic or artistic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm no studio musician, nothing like that. But I can hold my own, and maybe something in a song, or maybe something in my manner, or maybe something the spirit does when music is in the room in the life of the skeptic is the very thing that could trigger their journey toward faith. It's not just the purely uh, the technicalities of these intellectual arguments. It's the whole package, and mm -hmm. at least part of my package mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, wa I want part of my package to be the uh, aesthetic and artistic side of life because I think it's biblical. Mm -hmm. The Bible is full of art and full of the good aesthetics of the personhood of God and His beautiful world. It's interesting that uh, you mentioned yeah. art as well. I'm going to be speaking at an apologetics conference next Friday here in the area. And my wife's actually going to be speaking there too with her first talk ever. And she's going to be talking about the problem of evil from a layman's non-philosophical experience. And while we were discussing at our last meeting about how we're going to be going about this, because we wanted to give her some philosophical training and preparation, all of a sudden I remembered she's an artist and said, "Honey, you should make a PowerPoint and use your artwork. And before too long, everyone else saying, hey, that's a great idea. And saying, well, now i got to work on a PowerPoint presentation. So... She's either really grateful for that, or she's secretly planning my demise at this point for giving her so much extra work now. Right. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I love about being a Christian is that the Christian faith makes sense in and of all of the parts of life, uh, good and evil, uh, beauty and ugliness. And there's there's built-in wisdom and... Uh, kind of uh, reasons for all these things in the Christian faith. And I just love the breadth and the width that we're invited into as Christians to live under, live in God's uh, uh, wide world, you might say. Well, I'd like to move ahead to <clears throat> another chapter here where you talk about Jesus as the Son of God, <clears throat> and you use the term a massive conspiracy. You know, conspiracy thinking seems to be all on the rise today. When we were at this conference, you know, say we were talking with someone about history, and I said, 
And my wife said, don't you just love it when on the History Channel you see some like ancient aliens or mysteries of the Bible? All these conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the analogy <laughs> goes like this, that uh, atheist skeptics are very uh, ready to believe that a bunch of tax collectors and fishermen of first century Palestine could create this could, could conspire to create this massive lie of Jesus Christ with all of the complexities of the theology surrounding that and connecting it to the Old Testament and connecting it forward to the eschaton and all these things. I mean, it, it just boggles the mind to think of the layers that they came up with and how quickly it spread and how much unanimity there was on the essentials of this fictional Jesus. And that that was propagated throughout the early church for many hundreds of years and has resulted in Christianity today. In in order to uh, believe that level of conspiracy, that that takes a certain uh, uh, credulity, I think. But those same folks are not ready necessarily to believe other conspiracy theories like the uh, Apollo lunar landings of the 1970s. I think there were supposed to be six of them. And I would say many thoughtful atheists and skeptics, not all, but many thoughtful, well-educated atheists and skeptics would look at the lunar landings and say, yeah, that's not a conspiracy. I'm not quick to believe in conspiracies in general. I'm not going to believe in this conspiracy. These lunar landings were not staged Some Hollywood set. There's just too many things that could have gone wrong. There's too many people to be involved. Uh, the truth would have come out eventually. I just don't think President Nixon and his cabinet and all these people staged these uh, little landings. And so the people who say yes to the uh, Jesus conspiracy would tend to say no to other conspiracies like the lunar landings, mm-hmm. and I guess I'm asking them to be consistent. Yeah, I usually give people with the ideas of conspiracy with, okay, here's the first piece of advice. Don't. Yeah. Just don't believe it. Until someone brings you forth some serious, credible evidence, don't go for it. And unfortunately, today in our age, credible evidence, it seems like um, someone, I saw recently put up a little comic online of someone doing a search, and we're now going to go and do a real in-depth research of this topic, and hasn't clicking in Google search, and the top link is, first thing I come along, I agree with my point of view. And it says, ha, knew it all alone. Yeah. And it happens to be in Wikipedia. Yes, yes. I love Wikipedia, by the way, but I wouldn't want to count on it for scholarly research. Uh, I tend to refer to Wikipedia as the abomination that causes misinformation. Oh, yeah, sometimes it does. And when we are talking about the atheists you meet on the Internet, it looks like online the strangest theories are brought in about Jesus. Either he completely never even existed, or he's based on all these pagan copycats, which I'm tempted to say, yeah, some of you, you got some of the best scholarship of the 19th century going on right here. Yeah, right, get up to date. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do take on just a little bit, just dabbling in it a little bit, the idea of the mystery religions, the Hellenistic uh, cult that supposedly gave rise to Jesus. And I think one of the main arguments against that that I found persuasive put forth by various scholars, uh, Paul Eddy and Greg Boyd do a nice job with this, 
talking about how first century Palestinian Jews were really strong monotheists, especially after the Hellenistic rejection by Judas Maccabees and, and all those folks in the second century BC. And after that time period, you really have uh, a strong, strict monotheism take hold among the, the Jews. Though in the past, you know, in prior centuries, they tend, tended to wander from the faith some and chase after other gods. But that was part of the rejection of Hellenism, is, is that it imposed polytheism onto Jewish monotheism. And I think the Jews just put their hands up and they stiff-armed that stuff. And they said, no, we believe in one God. And so the one thing they would never do, being strict monotheists, is invent Jesus. They would never invent the Son of God, who is co-eternal with the Father, because that would appear to be polytheism. And so, uh, and then it, it does strain the imagination to believe that these first century Jews were so well-read in the Hellenistic mystery cults that they were able to come up with this fairly coherent, unified picture of Jesus and fit it in with the, uh, the archetypes of the mystery religion that came before them. There's just there's too many arguments against. There's a few similarities, and I'm, I'm okay with the similarities. Mm -hmm. right? So Jesus is a dying and rising God, and in the pagan mystery cults you have dying and rising gods, or at least reports of them, or or myths about them. There's some similarities. Okay, that's cool. Man is always uh, coming to some level of truth about God as, as human beings try to imagine uh, what life with God is like, imagine religion, but uh, I just don't see the, the connections being there. And especially the idea of uh, monotheism, they, they would not invent you. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah, the book you're talking about is a Boyd and Eddie, that would be the Jesus legend, right? That's a great book. Oh, yeah. It, it's one of the best books. I think another good one that people could consider would be by Craig Evans. You could consider Jesus and his world or fabricating Jesus. And if you're looking for a lot on the pagan dying, rising gods and such, when we're interested, I did an interview with Joe Marva here, who's doing his Ph.D. on this topic back on August 16th, and then my ministry partner, J.P. Holding, wrote Shattering the Christ Myth, which really deals with a lot of these. It's common very much on the campuses, though, with them. I'm sure you met several atheists who would tell you Jesus never even existed, or at least it's like, well, scholars don't even know if he existed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the Robert Price... Earl Doherty kind of uh, extreme radical wing of Jesus scholarship mm. that tends to promote those ideas and they have very little support in the wider scholarly community but those guys uh, well for one thing they're really colorful and literate so they're kind of fun to be around and and uh, they're also very vocal and so stylistically they tend to appeal to the vocal new atheists and the vocal new atheists who are looking for some scholarship to back up their prior held understanding tend to move toward Robert Price and Earl Doherty and some of those guys. And uh, I mean, I think we should read up on those folks and be familiar with them and be familiar with those arguments, but they're the ones who try to make those really tight connections between the Jesus legend and the uh, myths of the Hellenistic cults. Yeah, they used to kind of go towards the Bart Ehrman 
Kemp, but then they betrayed Bartram and really quick when he wrote that book that went against everything we believe in called Did Jesus Exist? Yeah. Yeah, I think Price has been pretty tough on Ehrman lately, and you'd think they'd be in the same camp, but I guess there are subdivisions of skepticism now, too. Mm. Yeah, uh, one of the most interesting books on this topic you can read is Five Views on the Historical Jesus, where Robert Price provides one, and then when James Dunn writes his response, he's saw up and was like, gosh, I didn't even know people like this still existed. Do people still believe this? He exclaims in that book. Yeah. And that he still was like, holy cow, or some exclamation. <laughs> that one of the other people that I was surprised it went very hard on him was John Dominic Crossan, of all yeah. people. I think, wow. A softer skeptic, but a skeptic nonetheless, about the uh, Orthodox Jesus tradition. And again, now you have subdivisions within skepticism. Well, since we talked about Bartram in a bit, let's move to a chapter that's kind of directed towards what he'd say. The telephone game, why the yeah. Bible is not full of errors. Now, we've heard this story before. How is it that these stories get told in the Bible? Where, if we're all sitting in a circle and I whisper to you a story, a line, and you whisper that same line to someone else, and, that per and then that person whispers it. By the time we get back to me, it's going to be something completely different, and we'll have a big laugh. So that should just tell us that this kind of communication, oral communication, and textual communication later on, it's just not reliable. Everything gets changed over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a common narrative, a common uh, critique in our culture that it's almost taken for granted, I would say, and that if someone says it at a party, no one ever expects it to be challenged. I guess I want to challenge it on a number of levels. <laughs> One is that you're, you know, uh, untrained skeptic or your untrained unbeliever, just garden variety unbeliever, probably thinks that a modern translation of the Bible is just a retranslation of the prior translation. Mm -hmm is a redo of the prior translation, and you lose a little bit of the integrity of the text every time. And that's simply not the case. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have generation number 10, and it's called the NIV. The NIV doesn't just go back to generation 9 and, mm -hmm. and change it and fix it. It goes all the way back to the ancient text that the other translations use. Mm -hmm. So I might go back to the Masoretic texts or some of the gospel texts of the early centuries. All of that is fair game for contemporary translators. And that's the first thing I want to say to a skeptic is, well, what do you even know about Bible translation? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, not much, it's just something I heard. And then I might say, well, modern scholars have a lot of early texts that they use in their, uh, as they make fresh translations. It's not just based on the, you know, 1940s NRSV, I mean the RSV or something like that, which is based on the 1910 something else. It goes all the way back. That's the first thing I want to say. And then maybe the second thing is that there's not just one telephone game going here. There's multiple telephone games. So you have different manuscript traditions. You might have a manuscript tradition coming out of Italy, you know, in Rome. You might have another manuscript tradition mm -hmm. coming, coming out of Jerusalem. And as those different traditions come down through the centuries, all you have to do is cross-compare the traditions in order to weed out the errors. And yes, errors are present. Bart Ehrman is good at pointing out to us how many errors, little variants, misspellings, and so forth exist in the text. Mm -hmm. It's really not that tough to weed out those errors. All you have to do is cross the pair 
one tradition with another, all you have to do, to go back to the analogy, is cross-compare one telephone game with another telephone game, and by doing so, you can uh, eliminate these mistakes. Yeah, Christian apologist Greg Cooper talked one time about talking to a waitress somehow at a restaurant. And I wish I knew how these people get into these conversations at restaurants, because sadly enough, they never happen with me. <laughs> but about this, talking with this lady, and she says, well, the Bible's been changed over time. He says, oh, where do you study about textual criticism? <laughs> yeah. And even right there, you can say to the waitress, well, what parts of the Bible? All of the Bible? Which mm -hmm. parts of the Bible? Yeah. And then she'll probably say, well, it's something I heard on TV. Okay, well, that's your source, huh? Something you heard on TV. Mm -hmm. That the Bible has changed and rechanged over the centuries. So I think we can just gently challenge some of these cultural cliches that uh, no one seems to question anymore. Well, since so many people tend to go with Ehrman's <clears throat> views out there and such, I like to point out this scholar who uh, made a couple of quotes. This first one in here he says, If the primary purpose of this discipline is to get back to the original text, we may as well admit either defeat or victory, depending on how one chooses to look at it, because we're not going to get much closer to the original text than we already are. At this stage, I work on the original manuscripts on the original amounts to little more than tinkering. There's something about historical scholarship that refuses to conceive that a major task has been accomplished, but there it is. And then the second quote from the scholar is, in spite of these remarkable textual differences, scholars are convinced that we can reconstruct the original words in the New Testament with reasonable, although probably not 100% accuracy. And say, and people, I'd like you to know that this scholar who makes these quotes is, in fact, Bart Ehrman himself. Oh, yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, Bart is very different in his academic writings than he is in his popular writings. And he's been criticized for that, for not being consistent. I, I, I really don't think of myself as any sort of specialist on Bart Ehrman, mm -hmm. but just knowing the general terrain that he operates in, he, he seems at times to say things for the purpose of the shock value, and then, when you look deeper into his scholarly writings, he seems to take those things back. I'm not sure which Dr. Herman I'm supposed to believe. When I was on Peter Bogosian's Facebook page for a while before he decided to ban a bunch of us, he uh, put up a link to uh, misquoting Jesus and how he had read it, and he said, The apologist won't be wanting to reply on this one. And we were just like, Oh boy, it's time to play here. Yeah, you really think we're unfamiliar with this one? Reality is, most of us here have already read Ehrman and we've written responses to him as well. But I think Peter Bogosian there just embodies what's going on in the atheist community. They read the side that agrees with him only and then say, well, that settles it. Yeah. Yeah, selective reading goes on, and as much as we can criticize atheists for doing that, I think the real call here is to make sure we don't do it. Mm -hmm. Especially those of us who specialize more in this area, we need to make sure that we're familiar uh, with writings and uh, scholarship and arguments from the other side. Absolutely. And then when we get to the oral presentation where it comes to how the stories were told, it's nothing at all like telephone games. I tell people these stories would have been told not individually, and you can't go back and check, these would have been told in group settings, and it would have been told back and forth, and I have a strange idea that Jesus was probably a 
speaker like many of us are today, and he probably gave his sermons and parables more than once. And they would have been easy to memorize. Most of us, if we just hear, say, the story of a good Samaritan for the first time, we might not get everything right, but we can easily repeat a story like that. Yes. You know, I sat down to Paul Eddie one day, and we just talked about historical Jesus, and he's the one who co-wrote Jesus Legend, Greg Boyd. Mm -hmm. I love that book, and I have it, and I keep going back to it. But just to hear him talk about it, really great scholar, and he's talking about this tradition, this oral tradition being uh, fixed yet flexible. It's fixed around the main components of the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. That is, his virgin birth, his teachings, a few of the central characters, the uh, uh, death, resurrection, a few famous incidents. Those are the fixed stories. And then there's flexibility in the oral tradition in that when the oral performances were done, were, uh, were carried off by his followers, uh, they felt free to rearrange some of the details in the chronology uh, for a particular audience so that they could get at the essence of Jesus hmm. for that audience. And it, it seems like the ancient uh, eyewitnesses here were much more interested in essences than in particular details. They wanted to communicate, who is this Jesus? What's his character? What are his main teachings? What are the main events of his life? But that's the fixed part. And then the oral tradition then was more fluid and flexible when it came to some of the details. A lot of modern people can't handle that, but I think if you're a Christian, you have to handle it, because that's how things unfolded in the early church. And if you're a modern skeptic, then I think if you really want to be honest, you've got to go back and take the text on its own terms and not impose some sort of contemporary standards on the ancient text. So it was really great to sit down with Paul and just to talk that out one day. We really had a wonderful conversation over a burger, and uh, just to get a feel for it, because I'd read his book, and then to hear him discuss it in person was really cool for me. People usually do tend to forget that. The analogy that I often use to describe it in a more personal way is, Suppose I'm at home one day, and the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, the Mormons come to my door, and we have a, a good little conversation together. Now, I'll call my parents afterwards and say, hey, uh, guess you came by, and here's how it went. Because they're my parents, they're proud of me, they want to hear how I'm doing. But then I'll call my in-laws, who are also my parents, and are proud of me, but they are much more red in apologetics than my parents are. So they're going to get a broader story because they understand a lot more of a language but both groups are going to get a true story yeah yeah, yeah and just the selectivity uh, Matthew Mark Luke and John written from different points of view some interdependence you know in some cases they used each other's writings but also some independence and the early church was in the best position to choose which of the uh, accounts of the life of Jesus were going to be canonized in the New Testament mm -hmm. and we need to place our trust in their judgment because they were there. They were the ones who knew best what the apostolic teaching was about the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Certainly better than Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. Certainly better than uh, Muhammad. Certainly better than any other of the uh, people who changed the life of Jesus, changed the narratives of Jesus. The reconstruction um, the deconstructionists, and then you might say the revisionists, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. 
uh, it's the early church. They were there. They know. And I think it's our duty historically, not just religiously, but historically, to go back and say, they're the eyewitnesses. Theirs are the accounts that I need to trust. If anyone's interested in this, since we're going to move on to the next topic, I did interview back a, a few weeks ago on the 23rd of August, Lee McDonald, on the topic of biblical canon. So if you've got some more questions on the canon, that's probably the podcast to go to. Now let's go to the next chapter to discuss, and that's where you say that we live in a broken world, and this is an image for a problem of suffering and evil. So give us the image you're wanting to use. Yeah, I just imagine this uh, picture of an earth with a big crack, almost like an, like an egg coming apart. And that image crystallizes a bunch of other ideas around the problem of pain, suffering, and evil. The main one being that God created the world good. It wasn't cracked when he created it. He, he created it whole and healthy and then invited us to be part of his, be in a relationship with him, be part of his family. And when we said no to that, when the human race, through our first parents, said no to that invitation, we fell away from God. We divorced ourselves from God, and in so doing, our environment fell with us. Mm -hmm. So a broken world, then, is meant to capture these two ideas of a broken humanity and broken environment, meaning the whole universe and all, it, all that it contains is broken. Well, once I get going on that path, that just sets me up for a lot of other parts of this argument. Now you've got something to say about moral evil. You've got something to say about natural evil. You've got something to say about uh, soul-building uh, arguments. Something to say about the other aspects of the problem of pain, suffering, and evil that often come up. And this notion of broken world just tends to crystallize all these ideas for me. And since my book is written to help with conversation and not just abstract thought, the idea of a broken world really helps me when the heat is on in real conversations. Yeah, it helps me when I'm just sitting around pondering these things by myself. But in the heat of battle, one might say, in a conversation, I can quickly think of this idea of broken world, lay it down, play it as my card without having to think about it too hard, and then I'm off and running on, uh, on every angle imaginable, maybe gratuitously. Local world has something to say about that as well. You know, we talked at the beginning of the show about having an intellectual connection and an emotional connection. And I find when we come to this question, there really does need to be an emotional connection. Yeah, I think you're right, Nick. We lead on this issue with empathy and pastoral care mm -hmm. rather than just leading with the technical arguments. And hopefully the idea of broken world and being divorced from God will help us uh, peer into the uh, into the broken world of uh, sadness and disappointment and hurt that people have experienced even through physical suffering or losing relatives. Uh, all the evil and suffering that's present in the world does invite from us, I would say demand from us, a pastoral and caring response before we ever come to any of these uh, intellectual matters. But then at some point, hurting people also will look at me and maybe even through tears say, okay, why did this happen? Where's God? Mm -hmm. How come I'm not healed? How come my mother isn't here? Well, now you're off and running on the apologetics. And we might say these two compartments are not airtight either. Mm -hmm. That at times when I'm giving an apologetic, um, I pause to listen and empathize and care. 
And at times when I'm pausing and caring and empathizing and holding someone's hand, uh, a little gentle tweak on an apologetic side of this can be uh, a helpful thing as well. So interweaving the pastoral and the uh, kind of mental, intellectual components of this, I think, gives us a holistic approach that can be really productive. And I've told people before that if people are just kind of like starting out on a project, say if you're ever a position like a pastor in a church and a mother comes crying to you one day saying she just lost her teenage son in a car accident, like, if you become a philosopher and an apologist at that moment, I will come over and smack you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, apologists sometimes are guilty of just trying to uh, give the right answers or fix things quickly. And it's really more of a process, and we need to take the whole person more into account, and that includes their experience, their emotions, their relationships. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully we are sensitive to those things as well. Now, one side of the problem of evil is, unfortunately, as your next chapter says, a lot of people blame the hammer. <laughs> what are you yeah. talking about? Yeah, this is the whole notion of Christians behaving badly, uh, Christian hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. And of course, the history of the church uh, does have some really regrettable uh, episodes, stories, narratives of Christians behaving badly. Sometimes it was Christians acting on each other in the early centuries of the church or acting on Jews, persecuting Jews. Fast forward to the early medieval period and you have the Crusades and then you have the various inquisitions, you have the Salem witch hunts, clergy sex scandals. Uh, there's plenty of ammunition out there, plenty of stuff in the history of the church to make a Christian blush. And I think that's the first thing we should do. Instead of being defensive and quick to explain away all these things, I think we should blush. I think we should say, mm -hmm. I acknowledge these uh, periods of harm and destruction. Uh, I'm sorry for them. I wasn't there, but I'm still connected with them spiritually. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ who do these things. And at some level, I can take uh, responsibility for them and you know, work for reform in the church so that those things never happen again. If only one person was killed in the Crusades, that would have been too many and would have been excusable. But in fact, thousands of people lost their lives in that tragic period of history. And we say, yep, it happened. Sorry, it's not good. Uh, we acknowledge that. Or the contemporary church has often been unfriendly to gay people. Okay, well, LGBTQ community, uh, we apologize for how you've been treated. And when you've not felt the hospitality of Christians and we've not been representing our Lord for a while. Then I think the second thing we want to say is that some people just misuse religion, though. There's a difference between the people and the religion. So don't blame the religion. And the analogy here that you alluded to is uh, don't blame the hammer. If I go out and pound dents in your car, with a hammer, who do you blame? The hammer or me? Well, obviously, she don't blame the hammer. It's not the hammer's fault. I'm the one who misused the hammer to bring harm to another pre uh, person. And in the same way, people who misuse religion to bring harm to other people, that, that's an atrocity. That we need to protest and reject. But again, it's sinful people misusing a good worldview, a good movement uh, for their own selfish ends. And that's where we say, hey, don't blame the hammer. And one of my friends, this happened to us in the kitchen one day. One of my friends was in the kitchen and 
the person was saying, well, Christians have caused all the wars, religions caused all the wars, and, and what about all these clergy? And I don't want to sit in their churches if they're out having sex with their secretaries, la-da-da, la-di-da, la-di-da. And I said to this person, well, don't blame the hammer. It's not religion's fault. The, the, the teachings of Jesus themselves don't condone these things, quite the opposite. That it's people, simple people who misuse these principles for their own ends. That's where the blame lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where this analogy of don't blame the handle really kicks in. We're, we're going to take a break at this point. We're going to come back in a bit and cover some of the other chapters in my book. But for now, I'm Nick Peters of Medieval Waters Podcast. My guest is Rick Matson, and we'll be back after this break. It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite rock radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock radio. Christian radio that doesn't suck. Check out CYIWorldwide.com, home of Grok Radio, free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. CYIWorldwide.com. Do you Grok? Hey, this is Minister Grok. Thanks for listening. Although Grok Radio is free, there are costs to upkeep the website, podcasts, and purchase Bibles and materials for street ministry. And while we are happy to pay this ourselves out of pocket, we will gladly accept any gifts if you feel led to support the shows and our street ministry. You can send a gift or love offering through our website at cyiworldwide.com. Thanks for your support, and God bless. Check out cyiworldwide.com. CYIWorldwide.com, home of Grok Radio. Free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. CYIWorldwide.com. Do you Grok? Can't get enough of your favorite Grok Radio shows? Well, now you can download episodes for free. Check out the Grok Radio program archive at CYIWorldwide.com. And we're back, and I'd like to thank you all for listening today. We're going to be having the second half of our show now. I am Nick Peters. My guest is Rick Matson, author of a book, Faith is Like Skydiving. But if you're here next week, we're going to have a good friend of a podcast return for his second appearance on the show. He's recently written a book called Truth in a Culture of Doubt. We're going to be going through that. My guest will be Daryl Bach again next week. And I, I see, Rick, you're giving a, a couple of thumbs up. You're really excited about that one, apparently. So, I hope you all will be here to hear Daryl Bach speak. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. He was on here earlier this year talking about Luke and the historicity of Acts as well. But now we're going to go back to Faith is Like Skydiving with Rick Matson. And here's an analogy I'm sure many of my listeners really love. Religions are like books. Right. Uh, religions are like books. And the analogy here tries to get at this, um, again, popular cultural notion that religions are different on the outside but the same underneath. That if you take away kind of the superficial layers of religion and get down to its core essence, they're all pretty much the same. And so it's kind of a 
feel-good pluralism. We're all on the same mountain, just different paths going up the same mountain. Or we're all the blind men uh, getting different parts of the same elephant as we crawl around the elephant. And so the religions are like books. That analogy is meant to kind of dig at that, challenge that cultural assumption. And the analogy is this, that <clears throat> let's say you go into a bookstore or go to a library, and you go to a certain section, and maybe there's a whole series of books. They look pretty much the same on the outside. Maybe it's a series of encyclopedias, or a series of commentaries, or a history series, or a science series, or whatever. And so the covers look fairly the same, or you go into the religion section of a bookstore, and the covers look roughly the same because they deal with God or transcendence or the real or whatever, Brahman. But when you open the books and actually read the contents inside, what you find is that these books tell radical different stories about reality. Mm -hmm. So in religious books, the covers might be somewhat similar, but inside you'll find that one talks about a personal God, another about an impersonal God. One talks about a single God, another talks about a single God, but as expressed in a trinity. You find uh, all sorts of different conflicting understandings of origins, contemporary society, and future. God, heaven, hell, there's actually not that much agreement between a lot of the religions. And so it's more, it's more accurate to say that religions uh, look like each other. They have some surface teachings that are, same, but, uh, that are similar, such as uh, love for other people and uh, perhaps love for God and treating others as you want to be treated, stuff like that, yeah, but that's more on the surface. When you dig down into the, the real narratives, dig down into the metaphysics of the different religions, you find that the uh, conflicts and contradictions, <laughs> they're all over the place. And that's the, uh, that's the analogy of how religions are like books. The, the way they usually agree, in fact, is that most of them, they have the same kinds of moral teachings that we'd expect. But this isn't a real shock for a Christian because we consider the morality part of natural law, general revelation, that's open to everyone. Yeah, common grace, that's why it's called commonness, because people, even in their fallen state, still have a memory of God. And God is revealed in nature and conscience. God is revealed through human community at some level. And so when people band together in community and come up with ethical standards, they're likely to take those standards from the tradition of their culture and so forth, and that might be embedded in a religion. And so, yeah, this common grace, this natural revelation, gives rise to a common set of moral principles that, that are found in a whole variety of places. But when you get down to the specific teachings about salvation, about heaven, about nirvana, about reincarnation, and so on, so on and so forth, you find that even though the ethical teachings are the same, the metaphysical and specifically doctrinal teachings are very different from religion to religion. I'm kind of curious, and how do you react if you're walking through a parking lot or driving down a highway, and I think you know where I'm going with this already, and you see one of those bumper stickers that says, Coexist. Coexist, yeah. No, I'm all for coexistence, and at McAllister College, where I work as the university staff, I, you know, sit around the table, you've got the uh, Catholic, you've got the Jewish rabbi, you've got the mainline Protestant, you've got the Buddhist, and so on and so forth, 
And I think what we've decided to do is love each other, care about each other, and coexist. We never say to each other, oh, we've got to agree to work together. Mm -hmm. We do work together. We do play together. We do enjoy each other's company. We do coexist. But there's none of this pretension that if you add it all together, it comes out into some sort of pluralistic brownie. Uh, uh, we actually, I think, appreciate and revel in our differences mm-hmm. rather than pretending that they all run together. So what is it then that you think makes Christianity unique from all the other religions? I think it gets, it all boils down if you distill all of the trappings and doctrines and the practices and so forth, it all gets down to Jesus, the identity mm-hmm. of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Who is Jesus? And if he is the unique, revealed Son of God, if he is God in flesh, if he not only died on a cross but rose again, if that whole story is authentic, then we need to listen to him and listen to what his views are on the rest, on the rest of reality. Mm-hmm. That narrative is shown to be inauthentic, is flawed in some way, then I think it's all up for grabs. Then I, then I say, hey, go grab Grab whatever, go grab whatever seems handy. Go grab whatever's going to help you make it through life. Because the one that we thought was uh, objectively true isn't. Or at least the one I thought was objectively true probably isn't. And then it's all up for grabs. Mm-hmm. So then, then, then it becomes an issue of whether or not the narrative of Jesus really is true or not. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go to another chapter here at Quick. And I wish we could cover everything again, but people are like, we just don't have... You have time to do everything, so we're just giving you a little snapshot here. I really recommend you get the book. This is one that really stuck with me, especially. It was a very surrealistic image that was produced. My my dad and I used to watch Cheers together a lot, so I have the same kind of image in there. That's hell is like an empty pub. Yeah, this came up just because I use it a lot on the road. And I guess the first thing to say is I'm not necessarily making a theological judgment here about the more severe passages in the Gospel of Matthew and other other places too about whether or not hell is more than the absence of God. It might be, and 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 I'm trying to refrain from wading into those waters, but at least, at the very least, hell is the absence of God, which is kind of C.S. Lewis' way of of taking this on. It might be more as well. It might be more severe than that. Mm -hmm. But if you think of hell as the absence of God, then hell becomes the place where God isn't. It becomes the antithesis of God. But not just God as a philosophical category. It becomes the antithesis of all that God stands for, such as beauty and community. And if God is the God of community, then... The one thing you're not going to experience in hell is this really wonderful community. And there's a kind of cliche in our culture that you'll often hear, I'd rather party with my friends in hell than, you know, sit around in heaven and just play harps and get bored and sing worship songs into eternity. Okay, well, that's that's one way to look at it, but what you're doing is stealing the idea of community, which is given to us by God, and placing it in a place called hell where it really doesn't exist. So I have this little parable in the chapter that talks about this guy named Ben who goes to the pub, goes to the bar in hell, and when he gets there, he's expecting to party with his friends, but 
he has this huge disappointment when he realizes that now he's alone, that hell is not a place of community, it's a place of isolation, not just from God, but from the community that God created. So hell's an empty pub, I guess you drink yourself silly, you drink yourself into oblivion. You shrink, as C.S. Lewis says, into nothingness as you drink your body and soul away all by yourself. Hell is an empty pub. That's the analogy. And then if someone presses me on that and says, well, you know, the Bible talks about other texts where hell seems like conscious torture as well, you know, active punishment for your sins, then I say, okay, well, make it harder. Let's go to those texts as well. Let's dig into those and find out what the author, author's intended on those. But I find that hell is an empty pub is a good introduction to the idea of hell because it cuts off this notion of parting with your friends mm-hmm. in eternity away from the God who is always pricking your conscience and always making you feel guilty for doing these things. In fact, I couldn't help but think when you were describing both heaven and hell, you said, well, hell is where you're partying with your friends and heaven is where you're sitting on clouds and playing harps all day long. I was thinking, yeah, you know, if that was accurate, I think most of us probably would choose the other place. We have a bad view of not only hell, but a bad view of heaven as well, because when I hear many Christians describe heaven to skeptics, I haven't seen anything. So that doesn't sound like the kind of place I'd want to go to either. Yeah. And I think contemporary scholarship has done a good job of kind of rejuvenating mm-hmm. some of the theology of heaven. And heaven is the presence of God. It's exciting. There's opportunities for service and growth. Some of this is taken from the early Genesis accounts. Others taken from Revelation. Others taken from the whole notion of what it means to be a created being in a universe and what might be the extension of that universe into eternity mm-hmm. in all of its uh, kind of the maximal uh, expressions of the good things in our universe becoming instantiated in hell. I mean, excuse me, instantiated in hell. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, a lot of good work has been done, and I don't have it in front of me here and can't quote it, but I have read scholarly works, scholarly articles on those things, and uh, I think I think it's an exciting development. And I know M.T. Wright has done some work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking of N.T. Wright, especially when we start talking about the joys of heaven. I think N.T. Wright has done so much to help us uh, remove ourselves from this idea of time, the sky, where we'll go by and by, and this world is just a wicked and evil place, and boy, I can't wait to get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah, and Randy Elkhorn, too, mm-hmm. at a more popular level done a good job saying, well, if we take the maximal experiences and benefits of this world and extend them into heaven, what, what might that be? Let's do a little holy speculation here. Mm-hmm. Based on some text in the Bible, and based on our imagination, and what can we come up with? And if you combine, combine that with some good scholarly work, I think the prospects of living in eternity in the very direct presence of God is really an exciting concept. And I think Peter Christ has also written some excellent material on this, especially his book, Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Sloaming. And one thing that really got me to get that book was when I heard Gary Hebermas say that that was, aside from the Bible, that was one of the five most influential books he's ever read. Oh my goodness, what was the name of it again? I'm not familiar with that book, actually. Peter Christ's book, Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Sloaming. Heaven, the heart's deep and long. Okay, I'll have to remember that. Yeah, why do I suspect you're going to be on Amazon right after this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, the, the image of Haribo, it is so striking in that when the, I, I can't say I'm totally sold on it yet because I've got my own interesting view of heaven and hell, which readers of the show, of my, of my blog and listeners of my podcast probably know about. But at the same time, I think what you're trying to get at with your imagery is avoiding that whole torture chamber, but pointing out it's the worst possible situation. Because one of the reasons anyone goes to a pub, you don't go to a pub to get beer. Because you can go to a grocery store to get that. You go to a pub to interact with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't just go there to consume alcohol. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do that, but I think the social dimension of being at the pub is probably the biggest draw. Because you can sit and drink at home by yourself if you want to, but a lot of people who socialize, happy hour and so forth, they're there because of the people. Mm-hmm. And with your imagery, we get a picture of mine of someone who comes to a big party and then realizes that for all eternity, they're by themselves. And there's not going to be any party taking place whatsoever. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's good to remind ourselves here that it's just an analogy. It's right. not supposed to get at this idea of lack of community in hell. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be thought of as a, a real bar, a real pub, obviously. And at the same time, it avoids the imagery we usually have of, say, Dante's Inferno being what hell is like. As if God's usually standing over there with a whip and lashing at people and I hear so many times when people are say, well, you believe in the God who's going to torture us in hell. Excuse me, uh, when did I say I believe in that? Yeah. You know, a good book on this is Four Views of Hell. Mm-hmm. And I forget the four authors right now. Uh, is it John Wolford, one of those authors? I haven't, and, uh, well, that's actually one I haven't read, but I'm looking it up Right now. Yeah, let's see. I have it. Yeah, Warbird is one of them. And the four views. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately the picture didn't come up for where I was warning it to, but Warbird is one of them. Uh, William Crockett, Zachary Hayes, Clark Pinnock. Clark Pinnock, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, four views on hell, you know, they. Write, each write their view of hell and they critique each other. And, uh, I found that book really helpful to give a general coverage of the spectrum of views mm-hmm. on hell. Mm-hmm. So your listeners might uh, be interested in that. Well, before we go to our next topic, I'm going to uh, remind everyone out there that, yes, everything we do here is listener support. I mean, I, I've told you, for instance, that I'm coming to you from a uh, hotel in Gatlinburg right now. The only way I'm doing that is because the people who put on this conference were nice enough for us and say, hey, uh, would you like it if we paid for you all to have a room to stay at up here in Gatlinburg? I mean, yeah, definitely. We'll go work for that. That's the only way we're handling it here. Now, I should point out first off that the Deeper Waters podcast is brought to you by CYI, largely, and Air Ministry goes doing prayer requests, bars, and several of our shows. So feel free to go to cyiworldwide.com and promote them. But if you're wanting to promote Deeper Waters itself and give to us financially, and we really could use your financial support in this, well, you can go to my blog at deeperwaters.wordpress.com 
and there is a place you can donate. Now, when you go there, you could get a bit confused because it takes you to Risen Jesus Ministries instead. You're going to the right place. It's just part one. You can make a donation there, and then you email Mike and Debbie Lacona, who run it, or you email me and let me know that you've made this donation. And if you email them, they know to look out for it. If you email me, I tell them, and they look out for it. And so when they see your donation coming in, they'll know, okay, this goes to Nick Peters, this goes to Deeper Waters, and they'll make sure we get that donation. And that is a 501c3. So what donation you make to them, it comes to us. And also, as I've said a number of times, I have my ebooks. There's another one that should be coming out soon on the new atheists. And J.P. Holding and I together have one recently on the inerrancy controversy, uh, defining inerrancy. And then, of course, from my blog at deeperwaters.wordpress.com, there's the Amazon store where you can buy books that you hear about on the podcast and such. And you buy them there, and I get a small amount of the proceeds. So there are a number of ways you can support. The best way is still just becoming a regular donor, and we sure could use your support. Now, Rick, do you have any uh, organization you would encourage people to donate to? Yeah, the one I work for. <laughs> uh, that being InterVarsity. And probably the best way to do that is just to go to InterVarsity.org and go to the Get Involved Donate mm -hmm. page and give to the uh, local work in your area. So mm -hmm. if you're in Florida or in Arizona or uh, Cleveland or wherever you are, go in there and find the local work that's being done at a college near you and give to the university staff there. And you can always give to my support there on, online and find Rick Manson, but I'd almost prefer that you uh, support your local work so that the university campus ministry will be strong in your area. I should let people know also that university does do some work with us here. They've sent a number of books my way, which I'm always grateful for. It's always so exciting to go to the post office box and see there's another book there and wonder what you're getting this time. And many of the, the books that I get, their guests go on to come on the, on the show and we talk about those books. So if you support InterVarsity, you're also helping that. So there are some great ministries you can support. You can support InterVarsity. You can support Deeper Waters. There's so much that you honestly need to support them. I always say start with your local church first, but then go beyond and support the ministry. If you think my ministry or InterVarsity or anything else is doing something worthwhile, please give your support. Now, let's get back to the book, Faith is Like Skydiving. And one of the chapter we want to talk about is about hunting elephants. <laughs> what does that have to do with apologetics? <laughs> yeah, that's an analogy I developed in my conversations with skeptics, kind of the science-only skeptics, who say, unless God can be shown, proven scientifically, I'm not going to believe in him. And I do think science reveals God at some level. Science studies nature, and nature reveals God. So there's lots to see about God there, but that's still different than saying, I'm only going to believe in God if I can, through the scientific method as a thing in itself, uh, can discover God that way. And I like to say, well, that's like putting out mouse traps to catch elephants. Mm -hmm. If you put out a bunch of mouse traps and then you, you check them after a couple of days and you say, hey, there's no elephants in my mouse trap, and then you declare 
that elephants don't exist just because mm -hmm. they're not in your basket. Uh, there's something wrong with that method. I guess I'd want to say to that person, you need to set out elephant traps if you want to catch elephant traps. Mm -hmm. And so if we can extend the analogy here just a little bit, you set out God traps and, yeah, to, to find and, and catch God, so to speak. It's a metaphor, obviously. Mm -hmm. And while science is helpful, if someone is so committed to the scientific method that they're not allowing any other means of detecting God, they're probably going to be disappointed. And I'd want to say there are so many ways that God has revealed himself to us. And he's a, as Tim Keller says, God is a clue dropper. He gives us clues of his existence and presence and care in so many different ways. But if we say to him, no, sorry, I'm only going to look for you in this one area of life by this one method, uh, you're probably going to end up disappointed. You need to set out some elephant traps. In other words, you need to be open to finding God or catching God in the ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, rather than forcing God into your single method. Mm -hmm. You know, another analogy that can work for this, I used it in a debate with an atheist uh, last spring, is the idea of uh, a person who receives UPS packages mm -hmm. at their home. And they, say, and they say to UPS, hey, deliver my house anytime you want to. There's a two-inch slot in the front door. Well, UPS has got packages of all sizes that they want to deliver to your front door, but if you've only got a two-inch slot through which all packages much, must fit, you're going to miss out on a lot of good stuff. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, if you're so committed to uh, the scientific method as the only way to find truth, uh, you could very well miss the God who's actually there, who's actually objectively present and wants to reveal himself to you but uh, is doing so on his terms, not yours. Edward Fesser has used the analogy of a metal detector, where he says, if you go to the beach with a metal detector, you're going to find coins, perhaps jewelry, a lot of interesting stuff, but you won't find a map, you won't find anything classic, you won't find any documents. And it's not because the metal detector is a bad metal detector, it's just because that's not what a metal detector was meant to do. That's perfect. Uh, that one might appear in my next book, and I'll give full credit to whoever came up with it, because uh, I, that's exactly it. You're narrowing the field of acceptable evidence to one place that probably you're not even consistent with. That's mm -hmm. one thing I often say to skeptics. I go, okay, well, let's go with your method. How do you scientifically prove that the world is more than 15 minutes old, that memory beliefs are true, that other minds exist? that your relatives love you. Um, all of the intuitive experiential decisions that you make in your life, yeah, they have some evidential parts to them, but they're not as strict as what you're, the, the standard that you're erecting for religious truth. Now, if you were consistent with this across the board, well, you probably wouldn't have much of a life, actually. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I'll do is point, how in, point out how inconsistent people often are with that particular methodology. But then I also just want to challenge the methodology itself and say, hey, it's, it's self-defeating. Mm -hmm. If you make a rule that says only science can detect God, well, that rule is self-defeating in that that rule itself is not uh, provable by science. Mm -hmm. So it's just fraught with philosophical errors 
And then a lot of times, science-only people who aren't don't have any training in philosophy, they kind of uh, miss this point. Yeah, I often do just talk with that question. I say, okay, can you scientifically demonstrate that? And no one ever gets past just that point. Now, a friend of mine, in fact, on Facebook and I were recently dialoguing with some skeptics, and we were asking, okay, if you went to, to find out for me what my favorite color was, which are you going to use? Are you going to go to science, or are you just going to ask me? And it was incredible, because these people were trying to defend, you need to go to science to establish that. And it sounds it gives me a point of, okay, this isn't, I'm just not even sure what to say anymore, because I don't really see how people can think this way. Yeah. Yeah, I had a guy write to me one time, and uh, one of his sentences, no kidding, was, never, ever believe anyone who makes a dogmatic statement. <laughs> really? Are you not seeing that you just made a dogmatic statement? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> Please tell me you wrote back and pointed that out. I did. It did nothing. He had no idea what I was saying. He was a science teacher, and I love science. I love science teachers. I'm not knocking that. But that's where philosophy is so useful. It shows how when we use language in these ways, we need to be really careful that we're not uh, defeating ourselves, undercutting our own uh, uh, assertions. Good scientists can often make poor philosophers. Yeah, and the other way around. I'll often admit that. I'll go, I'm more of a philosopher than a scientist. I'm not a trained scientist. I make no pretense to that. Mm -hmm. Hey, do you want me out uh, taking measurements on the tornadoes? Do you want me um, measuring chemicals that go into the latest uh, uh, medical discovery and, and all of that? No, you don't want me doing that stuff. Well, maybe you and Richard Dawkins and, and the, the science folks should let uh, us who are more philosophically minded do our jobs as well. Well, since we're talking about science, let's move to another chapter I alluded to earlier. Well, miracles are like a hole-in-one. And I told you my hole-in-one story at the start. And <laughs> You just weren't impressed when you found out it was a miniature golf course. I, I, I don't understand why that's the case, but oh well. Yeah. Well, again, Boyd and Eddie and the Jesus Legend do a really nice job of laying this out in a little bit more technical fashion. My book is a bit more maybe popularized. And their thing there is that the reason people don't believe in miracles kind of with David Hume is that they're unusual. <laughs> and what Hume is essentially saying is that if you add up all of the events in history where the normal course of operations exist and play themselves out, the, the, the normal functions of nature, the laws of nature, and you add those up and then you compare them with the supposed exceptions to the laws of nature, that being miracles. The normal course of operation wins every time. And so when someone comes along and says they've witnessed a miracle, or seen a miracle, or experienced a miracle, you've got a whole bunch of reasons as a skeptic to say, eh, it probably didn't happen. One, you've been trumped mathematically. The arithmetic on the whole thing is not in your favor. All the all the normal operations of nature trump the exception. Secondly, witnesses are gullible. They're often mistaken, or they have... Uh, ulterior motives to report miracles that didn't happen and so on. So at the end of the day, what you end up with is, well, miracles are just so unusual that we're just going to write them off altogether. We're never going to believe in them. 
And I've got a friend named Michael who's sort of taken that tack lately, amazingly to me. He used to believe the other way. And now he just says, I know miracles don't happen. I go, wow, you, what makes you so smart? Have you examined all the miracle claims in history? You being a science person, examined all the miracle claims in history really closely and done, done a scientific analysis on all of them and found them all wanting? And what makes you think that all witnesses are unreliable? So a hole-in-one analogy says if a little girl goes out on her first day of golfing and she's nine years old and gets a hole-in-one on 175-yard par three and comes, and ho comes home and tells her daddy that she got a hole-in-one and daddy's a skeptic, daddy has an obligation not to believe his little daughter, little Ashley, who just got a hole-in-one. She's so excited. And the father's name is Jim in the story. Jim pretends to be excited with Ashley. So Ashley's jumping up and down, giving him high fives. They're hugging each other. And Jim is just pretending in the back of his mind. He's going, well, I have an obligation not to believe this. Because you take the number of times that nine-year-olds have gone out trying to hold on one the first time out golfing and haven't done the normal course of nature. And compared to the number of times that it has happened, or supposedly has happened, the normal course of nature overwhelms and trumps the supposed hole-in-one every single time. I cannot believe in this. Therefore, I must pretend to be happy, and my skepticism will rule. And that will make it even harder for Jim. Now, Jim, let's put him at the, at the scene of the hole-in-one. He's there when it happens. He's standing on the 18th green, waiting for his daughter to finish up. He sees her out 175 yards away, and she actually makes the hole-in-one, and he sees it go in the cup. But again, on principle, Jim still is obligated to disbelief because the odds are uh, against him. Mm -hmm. It's more likely that he was hallucinating that he saw a real hole-in-one. Mm -hmm. You start to dig into this and you see the absurdity of, of Jim's life. He's so committed ideologically to a certain way of seeing things that a really cool event in his life goes right past him and he misses it and he ends up not celebrating with his daughter because, in principle, he cannot believe in holes in one. And dumb stuff like seeing it with your own eyes don't even matter. Mm -hmm. That's the analogy. You know, what I usually ask people nowadays when this kind of question comes up is, I, I point to a guest that we've had on the show in the past, and his book is excellent. I said, have you ever heard of Craig Keener and read his book, Miracles? And it's amazing that I don't meet people who've read his book but I meet a lot of people who know that his book is wrong. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, one of my critics called me out on that recently, like, uh, hey, shouldn't you have at least mentioned Craig Keener's book on miracles in your chapter on uh, miracles on the whole in one, which I did not do. And so uh, I accept that criticism, and next time around I'll, I'll try to do better. Actually, I'm kind of thinking I might have been one of those people who said that. That could be. Yeah. yeah. It just seems like there's this universal assumption always that miracles can happen, and I, I constantly hear a refrain, no evidence, no evidence, no evidence, and I'm thinking, are you trying to convince me or yourself? Yeah. Yeah, and the person who's committed to science only needs large sample size, uh, large sample size, as many samples, in order to draw conclusions scientifically. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I often say to science-only people, which is sometimes called scientism, is you need large sample size to draw your conclusion. Have you investigated a large sample size 
of miracle claims mm-hmm. and then come to the conclusion that they're all false. And mm-hmm. until you do that, your science only commitment to the scientific method is is suspect. Mm-hmm. You don't seem as committed to it as you say. Well, let's look towards uh, some of the final sections in your book where you give some pointers on how to talk with people. Yeah. So at the start, you have how to talk with skeptics. Okay, who do you have in mind? Could you repeat the last thing, Nick? There, I, uh, I, I think. Okay, where, where to be more specific? How to talk with modern skeptics who believe in God? Mm-hmm. Actually, what kind of people do you have in mind? Yeah. You know, I got thinking about audiences, and me being in my fifties, I connect a lot with. You know, I'm a college student because I'm an Ivy staff and a teacher and so forth, but I also connect with my own generation and above. And it seems like a lot of people in my generation and above have this paradox in their lives. They're both skeptics and believers. So they have a generalized, generic belief in God, maybe even an afterlife of some sort of rewards and punishment, heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not all that explicit. So how to talk with someone who's a modern skeptic who still believes in God, modern as opposed to postmodern, meaning they believe in real truth. So I want to appeal to the notions of real truth. I want to provide evidence and argumentation to a modern person. Mm-hmm. And if they believe in God, maybe it's time for them to move on from that more generic belief in God to examine the specific claims of Christ. Mm-hmm. And what does Christ say about heaven and hell? And your modern skeptic, who also might be a believer in God, tends, not in every case, but tends to believe that the harder you work and the better person you are, the better your chances are when it comes your day in the judgment seat of God. Mm-hmm. And that's the time to bring in the whole notion of grace. And a lot of modern people have no understanding of grace. They might have grown up in a mainline church or something, they just never really got it. They left the church after confirmation, and all they can think about, well, if I'm a good person, if I help people in this lifetime, maybe God will let me into this heaven. So I want to talk about a real Jesus who believed in a real heaven and hell, gave us portraits of those things, and gave us a pathway uh, to both both destinations. The pathway to heaven is through grace. So I might go to a text like uh, Ephesians 2.8, which says that grace is through faith. It's not by your works and explain to someone that unless they receive the gift of grace, that being Jesus' death and resurrection, it's a grace in your life, and you receive it by faith. Unless that happens, you will never impress God enough with your work. So this is sort of classic evangelism. Evangelism mm-hmm. training that a lot of us might have gotten 20 years ago about how to talk to people and mm-hmm. present the message of heaven, hell, grace, salvation, uh, sin, and so forth. And this is your modern person. A lot of times these folks are a little bit older, maybe uh, 45 or 50 years and above, but not always. I find them on college campuses as well. There's your modern skeptic who believes in God but is not active in their faith. Uh, Those are the sorts of approaches I want to take to that person. Let's talk about the kind of person that many of my listeners here will encounter. How to talk with a modern atheist, which oftentimes seems exceedingly difficult. Yeah. Now, the modern atheist, again, there's different camps, as I alluded to earlier. You have your kind of dialogical, cooperative atheist who's on the road to truth and wants dialogue partners in, a, in his or her own camp and outside of his or her own camp. 
Well, now you're locked arms with someone who's on a journey. You can learn from that person. That person can learn from you. You read their literature. They read your literature. And you've got something really cool taking place. On the other hand, you have your more combative, uh, you know, more nasty or atheist. I don't quite know how to describe them. Uh, one site that I go to very often described as McAtheist. Yeah, McAtheist, yeah. Because mm -hmm. they just get cranked out through these websites. Mm -hmm. uh, that person is a lot tougher, but I think one of the first things I want to do is just pray and care. Mm -hmm. I want to pray for that person, pray for openings, pray for dialogue. I want to care about that person. I'm willing to take a few hits from that person, a few punches from that person without looking back. Uh, I want to call them on their ad hominem arguments by saying, hey, that sounds a, more like a put-down than a real argument. How would you actually back that up if they're just throwing insults out there? Mm -hmm. And then I want to show by my manner and how I handle argumentation and how I have some uh, qualifications in my argumentation, some disclaimers. Uh, I make modest claims, and I try to back them up as well instead of making absolute claims. Mm -hmm. and if you come in with a bit more measured approach and come in with a way that's uh, caring and, and loving and respectful, many times, not always, but many times, uh, this person was softened and you end up with a good conversation. But if I say, well, i got to defend the honor of God here, and every time a jab is made in my direction, I need to send back an equal and opposite, if not stronger jab, now you're in a fist fight, and things tend to devolve and degrade into a lot of uh, fist fighting, rock throwing, and insults going both ways. And I have zero interest in that, and I think it just hardens both parties into their positions. Mm -hmm. What if I said to this person, I actually hold to Christianity because I think it's true, and if you could show me that it's not true, I will actually listen and perhaps temper my position, maybe even change. Mm -hmm. Well, now the person starts to feel like, wow, if they're willing to risk their beliefs and put them on the line, maybe I actually do the same if they have any integrity, that is. Some of them mm -hmm. don't, unfortunately. Yeah. But a lot of them do. And I think you can draw these new, hardened, combative atheists out of their, uh, out of their corners a little bit more and come into the ring of respectful dialogue if you take the initiative to show love and respect on the fair end. And for those that don't, I think at some point you just move on to the next person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if they just have no interest in real dialogue, then I guess I want to find people that do have interest in real dialogue and uh, shake the dust off of you. Mm -hmm. Something that we were discussing at our latest Reasonable Faith meeting where we were helping my wife prepare for her upcoming talk on the problem of evil wrestling. There are some people out there you're not going to reach no matter what because frankly they don't want to be reached they don't really care, but you answer them anyway. You don't answer them for the sake of them, but you answer them because there are other people watching who we call fence-sitters who are seeing the dialogue take place, and those are the ones that are more prone to hear what you have to say. Yeah. You know, the famous uh, writer and apologist, uh, James Sire, who wrote The Universe Next Door, mm -hmm. uh, he said to me one day when I was in his company, said, Rick, it's not really the truth that's heard that often makes a difference. It's the truth that's overheard that makes a difference. And I, I've never forgot that saying. So every time I get 
in the company of a combative atheist and there are other people listening, I say to myself, this is worth it. Because mm-hmm. the people in the audience here, the pet sitters, as you just said, are listening to what I have to say and they're watching my manner and they're judging this dispute uh, in the larger picture, not mm-hmm. just on the technicalities of the argument. And maybe, by the way, I represent Christ in my manner and attitude and respect will actually be a witness to this. For those who are interested, since you did mention James Sire, I could point out, giving a little preview of things to come, he's going to be my guest in two weeks on the show. So wow. you're, you're going to be in for a treatment. In fact, we're going to be talking about three of his books at once. So, yeah, Fantastic. Yeah, he, he's a legend. In fact, he was the one who told you to use music, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He said, Rick, have you ever thought of using your music in apologetics? And I always thought, well, that's a little dainty for the rough and tumble of the college campus. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, I break it out. Uh, I remember once some students at Michigan State one night, after I'd done a presentation on apologetics, they said, hey, sing us a song. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd had a couple of uh, slides of myself in my younger days uh, in music. And I said, well, I'm not going to sing right now, but I'll play you a hymn on the guitar. And the worship leader handed me her acoustic guitar, and I uh, uh, banged out a couple courses of an old hymn. And I think it uh, rounded out the apologetic for Christ that I was making for the mm-hmm. evening. Well, let's move on to the last question about with the postmoderns. Now, some of my audience might not know exactly who we're talking about. What do we mean by a postmodern? Well, technically, it just means after modernism. It means after the time period of the, uh, the you know, maybe from the time of Rene Descartes in the 16th century uh, forward, maybe all the way to the present time. Uh, that's the modern period. And then postmodernism, again, it, definitions are not precise, but it's the, it's the time period that maybe started in the, I don't know, 60s, give or take, and mm-hmm. has gone to the uh, present time. So in these days, we're in modernism and postmodernism together. Mm-hmm. And postmodernism simply rejects the modern view of the world, rejects the idea that there's objective truth out there and that everyone, every reasonable person has access to it. Mm-hmm. Rejects the idea that all people see the world from the same perspective. And postmoderns think there is no necessary real world to see. Everything is based on the perspectives of people and their, under, their cultural understandings of the world. And then postmoderns are very quick to say that there's, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a politic of of uh, human relations and a, a, a politic of uh, the institutions in our society that every time a person says something they say it from their perspective and they say it with certain agenda and that agenda is usually uh, bent in their favor and since there's no real objective truth out there and everything is based on one's own perspective the whole notion of uh, ethnocentrism and selfishness really kicks in here. Mm-hmm. And uh, the best one can do is speak uh, toward the goal of enlightened self-interest. It would be rare that anyone would be speaking for the uh, overall the common good. So when you take in this radical perspectivalism and you take in this lack of objective truth out there in reality, now the world is suddenly divided up into all of its little units. There's no grand whole anymore, no grand narrative, no grand story that everyone subscribes to. 
It's all local stories, local understandings, and local realities, really. And that person is really in a different world than the modernists that, uh, me being in my 50s now, that I grew up with, kind of studying science and studying the supposed objective views of history. Hey, histories are written by people who have agendas. And uh, there's no objective history, there's only perspective in history. So that whole kind of accumulation of doctrines, one might say, or understandings of the world, is what characterizes a postmodern person. And of course, you'd want to take a bit different approach to them than you would the moderns. Okay, what kind of approach do you take to them? Nick, I think a lot of it is setting, community, context, caregiving, uh, playing my whole orchestra with uh, arts, with uh, uh, relational experiences, with dialogue, with listening, with service, service opportunities. Uh, all of those bespeak to a certain context that I want to draw this person into. And the extent to which I uh, am comfortable in those settings and those contexts and can make a friend and uh, kind of walk along in true dialogue, now you're getting somewhere with the postmodern person. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, um, you can start to talk about uh, truth. You can, you can maybe challenge the notion that there is no objective truth and challenge the notion that uh, there's not a right way to look at the uh, person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. You can introduce them to the, the way that Jesus interacts with women and the poor and the marginalized. There's so many things that are attractive about Jesus, even politically and relationally to a postmodern person. So drawing them into the stories and narratives of the Bible, and especially in the Gospels, can be a really wonderful way to reach out to postmoderns. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so it's a little out of time. It's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. We're probably starting a little bit earlier in the process and the equation of well with a modern person. Mm -hmm. But in some ways it's more satisfying too because a lot of times postmodern folks care more about the aesthetic side of life and care more about the the poor and the oppressed, the marginalized, those who are underserved. And insofar as Christians are involved in those endeavors, showing ourselves to be true representatives of Jesus in those settings. Uh, a postmodern person can be right there, pounding nails with us at Habitat for Humanity, and that's where a conversation can take place. And where you can say to the postmodern person, have you ever really delved into the narrative of Jesus and tried to make yourself a part of that narrative? Mm -hmm. Well, I have. It's a fantastic story. It's a fantastic narrative. And it ends in the very presence of God. Would you be interested in studying that with me? And so now you end up uh, studying the text together, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm rambling here just a little bit, but I think it's befitting mm -hmm. of the postmodern setting. It's not that formulaic. It's more art than science. It's more just listening to where the Holy Spirit might go next in this relationship uh, than any sort of prescribed method that you might use with a, uh, a modern person. So. Mm -hmm. I'll jump in anywhere here, Nick. I've gone on for a little bit, but... Uh, actually, there's not much more I can say at this point, because we kind of reached a point where it is time to be wrapping things up. But if someone wants to find out more about you and get in touch with you, how do they do that? Probably the best way is my, through my email right now, because my website, I just pulled it down, and we, we're reconstructing it. 
so it's uh, under reconstruction right now. Mm -hmm. But uh, Rick Dotmanson at studentjourney.org, and I will spell that R I C K dot M A T T S O N at studentjourney.org. That S T U D E N T J O U R N E Y studentjourney.org. Rick Dotmanson at studentjourney.org. Just email me and. Uh, if you want to have me come and speak at your church or campus, or just want to dialogue a little bit on email, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me right now because I'm between websites. Mm -hmm. yeah, if you're interested in getting the book out there, I'm looking on Amazon right now. It's twelve fifty for paperback. If you want to get the Kindle edition, that's nine thirty nine. So, is, is there any final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience? Yeah, I think that apologetics belongs in the evangelism toolbox. That's one thing I'd like to leave everyone with that thought. It's not a thing set off by itself in the ivory tower someplace that only a few of us have access to. We should all dabble in apologetics. We don't all have to be experts in it, but I think we should all at least dabble in the reasons and evidence and arguments for the Christian faith. And it should be one of the wrenches in our toolbox. It's not the only one. We've got lots of different tools in our evangelism toolbox, such as prayer and caring and service and proclamation mm -hmm. and personal testimony and so forth and evangelism, I mean, excuse me, apologetics ought to be just one of those tools in the evangelism toolbox. Mm -hmm. I'd like people to think about it that way. Mm -hmm. Well, Rick, it's been fascinating having you on, and I hope we'll see you around here again sometime. Thank you, Nick. I'd love to come on again, and I appreciate what you do in your ministry. Well, you get another book out there and let me know about it, and we'll see what we can do about that. Take care. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that next week, Daryl Bach is going to be my guest. We're going to be talking about his book, Truth in the Culture of Doubt. For now, I'm Nick Peters of the Deeper Waters Podcast, and we are signing off. It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite rock radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphone, and tablet. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock Radio, Christian radio that doesn't suck. You're listening to Rock